Okay, well, I will uh, open us up real quick in a uh, short prayer, and then we will get into tonight's lesson. Lord, thank you so much for everyone that's here. We pray that you would guide our conversation today, that you would, most of all, be with us and help our hearts to be opened in compassion to others, whether they are our fellow humans or they are your creatures who are not human, Lord, we pray that you would give us a compassion and a desire to see the world as a creation that belongs to you and is loved by you and give us the wisdom to be able to treat it as such. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so last week we talked about the ideology of anthropocentrism, and that is uh, the big word that we will be learning throughout, uh, throughout this five-week class session, and the term is a combination of the two words anthropos, meaning human, and centricism, meaning at the center of, and it is a way of seeing or imagining the world that places humans and human interests at the center of everything. So according to this belief system, only humans matter and only human interests should be considered. And the non-human facets of creation are only valuable insofar as they serve human interest, rather than being valuable because they are part of God's creation and thus belong to God. And we talked about how this type of belief contradicts the biblical revelation seen throughout scripture, and especially in verses that we've returned to again and again, Isaiah 11, Romans chapter 8, and Colossians 1, such as in verses 19 through 20, which read, for in him, meaning Christ, meaning Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And so that's been kind of our theme verse throughout this, that I, I'd hope we walk away from uh, a kind of understanding that, uh, you know, that, that verse of all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And we've been seeing how that applies to animal theology as well but also how it kind of contradicts this kind of anthropocentric thought. And so this week, we are still going to stick with this topic. Uh, so if it bores you, I'm terribly sorry. And there's a chance I might bore you even more tonight. But we are going, uh, we are going to examine a couple of the most influential philosophies that serve as kind of a, a, a foundation of anthropocentrism or prop up anthropocentricism. So I thought it'd be important for us to kind of like, you know, really get into the weeds and understand the type of thinking that motivates this. Um, and it's been mentioned, I believe, in both of our first two sessions would be enlightenment philosophy, uh, the, the philosophy of the enlightenment era. And you certainly find anthropocentricism in the thoughts of multiple philosophers of that time, perhaps not all of them, but certainly many of them, um, at least in the Western world, uh, 
you know, like Spinoza and things like that. But there's one in particular who has had certainly the most influential impact on the way that people think about animals and the most influence on these type of anthropocentric philosophies. And that would be the philosopher René Descartes. Descartes was a 17th century philosopher and he had this long flowing hair and you know the perfect kind of French French mustache looking kind of guy um, and if you take a, an intro to modern to a modern philosophy course you'll most likely start with his famous work meditations on first philosophy and he was undoubtedly a very brilliant creative and novel thinker uh, he transformed the course of philosophy in the Western world. So that's, you know, that's a big deal. So not trying to denigrate his, his ability to think. Um, but in that work, his most famous uh, thing that he did, Descartes follows an intellectual experiment of methodological doubt. Basically, if he can think of any reason at all to doubt something, if he does not have total and 100% certainty about one of, one of his beliefs, then he would just stop believing it until he, could, uh, until he could doubt no longer and finally arrived at absolute certainty. Uh, and so this was kind of like an intellectual experiment that he did. Uh, and so he would look around, uh, he'd look at the world around him and he'd think, well, uh, maybe I'm actually dreaming right now. So everything in the world around me uh, might not actually be real. Maybe I'm really just in my bed right now, and this is all some sort of dreamy illusion. Or uh, today, the example that everyone gives is uh, maybe I'm actually just stuck in the matrix, you know, and, and none of this world around me is real. Uh, and so, you know, Descartes thinking through that kind of stuff, he's like, so I can't really be certain that I'm actually in my room right now, or that even this is my real body. This might not be my real hand. I might just think that it is, um, but you know, maybe I'm dreaming, et cetera. So he goes on like that for a long time until at last he comes to something that he thinks he cannot doubt because no matter how hard he tries, he cannot doubt his own existence. In order to doubt his own existence, he would have to exist in order, in order to carry out the action of doubting. Uh, so even if he is caught in the matrix and his entire reality is a lie, he could not then say that he himself does not exist. Because in order to think the thought, I don't exist, there must be a subject in existence in order to think such a thing. Uh, and so that's where we get the, his famous phrase that you might have heard of before. I think, therefore, I am. And that's kind of the summary of his big philosophy and then this huge endeavor that he does. I think, therefore, I am. In other words, because he has the ability to think and he cannot doubt that he is carrying out this activity, he knows that at least he exists. And this, of course, gives rise to a, um, a very famous philosophy joke that I think is almost obligatory to, to tell whenever you mention Descartes. Uh, so Descartes, uh, one night he, after work, he goes into a bar um, and he sits down and the bartender asks, would you like a drink? And Descartes goes, ah, I think not. And then ceases to exist. Uh, so <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> very lame joke, but it is uh, one of the most one of the most famous. It's obligatory to tell if you're, if you're talking about Descartes. Um, but I also like it because it kind of is a flip that summarizes some of his uh, some of his philosophy. So hopefully that helps uh, enable all this to make a little bit more sense. And so from this philosophy, Descartes starts to come up with what is called like a theory of mind or a philosophy of the mind. And so he believed that the mind is a distinct subject from the rest of the, uh, sorry, a distinct substance from the rest of the material world. So you have like the material world composed of matter, but then you have the mind, which Descartes believed is immaterial. This is something along the lines of what religion uh, or what, you know, different faiths call whenever they talk about like the soul. Um, and so he believes that these two things are, are very separate and, and distinct. Um, and in Descartes' day, people had kind of this older view of matter. And so in, in their time, uh, the material world was subject to kind of um, irrevocable physical laws that operate in a deterministic fashion. So if that's a bunch of technical jargon, don't worry about it. Basically, they thought that the universe was like one giant machine. And matter is kind of like the rotating gears within that machine, right? Um, and a gear's movement and behavior is determined by the rotations in the machine. So like a gear is not free to decide to do something on its own. Uh, it can't just start, decide to spin in the other way or, or something like that. And so the whole, they had a view of matter, which was like the whole universe is like that. Everything is kind of set in its place um, and it's going according to this fixed determined pattern. But, uh, or maybe you've heard of this before, like this was influential on the, uh, the belief of deism, deism right, which was like the, the clockmaker view of the world. So um, God is like, uh, in this analogy, God is like a clockmaker. So a clockmaker, you know, uh, sets all the gears in motion, uh, it winds it up, and then it just lets it go, right? And then the clock kind of runs on its own in a predetermined fashion. Um, and so that's kind of where some of that type of deism comes from, is this philosophy. It's like a world's like a giant clock, Hopefully that makes sense. Um, and so, but for, for Descartes, he didn't think that this was the case with the human mind. The mind exhibits an incredible capacity for freedom. Um, just look at language. The human mind can generate nearly an infinite amount of combinations of words to create new sentences that have never been spoken before. And we can do this with an incredible amount of intentionality. Uh, like we can choose word combinations in order to communicate inner states of experience that can be understood by a listener. You know, like I can share my feelings with y'all um, and I can share kind of what's going on inside my mind, what my emotions are like, and I can choose the right words to put together into a coherent sentence to be able to speak to y'all. And then y'all can hear that and understand what I'm talking about. It's almost like magic if you think about it, you know, like that's really crazy uh, that language is able to do something that that we have the capacity to do something like that. Um, and so it's rare. It's pretty unique uh, within the scope of the world. We don't really observe that much in the world around us, something that that is that, you know, kind of 
free and creative. And so for Descartes, the human mind is distinct from the determinism of matter uh, or from the determinism of the physical world. In fact, for Descartes, like I said, it is a different substance. It's an immaterial substance. And this is called Cartesian dualism. Uh, so that's another kind of fancy term for you that you can use to impress your friends. Uh, Cartesian, you know, that, that's how they say that like something came from Descartes. Dualism, and that's the belief that there are two substances, one material and, uh, and one physical. And human minds are like, uh, sorry, one that is material and one that is spiritual. Uh, and the human minds are kind of like an immaterial or spiritual substance. So you, you might be wondering like, okay, thank you. That, that's interesting, you know, crash course in philosophy, I guess. But what does this have to do with animal theology? Uh, so don't worry because uh, uh, the impact for this is, is huge. Um, and in unfortunately many very bad ways. According to Descartes, animals were not like this. Non-human animals were not free. So Descartes did not believe that non-human animals had immaterial minds. And so then it became a kind of a common belief system at Descartes' time and, and following him that animals operated purely according to instinct. Um, and well, that was kind of around during Descartes' time, so he adopts that. So you have this view that like animals operate purely according to instinct. So humans for Descartes, like we talked about, they can deliberate about things, they can decide whether or not to take certain courses of action. You know, you have all this kind of uh, freedom and language that we can think through and, and talk about stuff and deliberate and be rational. But he thought that animals, you know, they can't do that. And he thought that animals were motivated purely by just instinctual drive. So they don't have that freedom. And so as a result, Descartes comes to this belief that animals are basically just organic machines, right? So he places them purely with, you have this dualism of there's the deterministic, machinic, physical world operating according to strict physical laws that can't be broken. Uh, and then you have some kind of spiritual or immaterial substance, which would be the human mind, in this situation. So Descartes puts like all non-human animals just in the category of the machinic universe or the mechanistic universe. Uh, and they have, so according to him, they don't have any sort of inner experience. They have no imagination. They have no emotions or anything like uh, subjectivity. So whenever you see animals doing things, they're just reacting to external stimuli, the way that a machine reacts whenever you push one of its buttons. So animals are caught up entirely within the mechanistic operations of the world, but humans have something that allows them to be free. And if this is the case, then according to Descartes, animals do not experience pain or suffering in any real sense. Sure, you might see animals crying out in pain, but that's no different than your microwave beeping to let you know that the food is finished. And so as a result of this view, Descartes and his followers thought that humans should kind of, well, I don't know for, 
for Descartes, you know, don't want to, don't want his ghost to, to visit me tonight because, you know, his immaterial mind to visit me tonight and say that, you know, hey, I didn't, I didn't say that that was my followers, but at least his followers came to the conclusion that humans should abandon any consideration for the proper treatment of animals. Like, you know, would you hold any serious discussion about the proper treatment of a vending machine or of your microwave? Probably not. The only thing that you would care about is just not destroying it so you can continue to use it for your own purposes, but it's just property. And his followers thought the same about animals. And the result of this sort of thinking led to some pretty horrific consequences. Animal experimentation goes through the roof because you could just torture and do anything that you wanted to animals. And it was totally fine because animals were like hardly real. It's taking, I know this is gross and graphic, but like taking apart an animal is no different than taking apart your refrigerator. Uh, it's like, you know, taking the engine out of a car. Uh, I, I won't go into detail, but the things that they did were unimaginably horrific. Um, and then they would also just mock and laugh at people who thought that their research was, was too cruel. You know, oh, those silly people who still think that animals can experience pain. Um, and so that, so you see there how that type of um, philosophy, we start with this kind of, you know, enlightenment, uh, you know, experiments in, in philosophy and how that ends up leading to this very cruel treatment of animals by, you know, seeing them ultimately as kind of just machines in the world with no, like they're, you know, they're hardly real <laughs> uh, in this philosophy. Um, and so before we get into kind of, uh, into like a, a critique of Descartes, because I am going to bring up some things that I, that are wrong. And there's also just a lot of weird assumptions that he's making. And um, I'm sure some of y'all were even thinking, like, wait a second, that's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so don't worry, we will get into that. But I wanted to take uh, a moment because I know that um, I just went through like, you know, a really, really quick <laughs> uh, lecture. So I, I do want to make sure that everyone kind of has the opportunity to, um, to talk. So let's see how many of us are there. Um, all right, I'm actually, we're going to try something new tonight. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to put us into breakout rooms for just like three minutes. Um, and I would like y'all to consider this question. Uh, talk with one another and ask, how do you think that this philosophy relates to scripture, theology, and God's self-revelation in Christ? How does Descartes line up or how does Descartes line up with or line up against Christian teaching? So I will put that into the chat for y'all so that way you don't lose it. So you can have these kind of discussion questions and um, I'll, let's see here. We'll do uh, three breakout rooms. Um, and then y'all can, um, after we're done, you can just kind of um, report uh, back to me and, and let me know what it was like. All right, I'll see you in about three minutes.
Okay, great to see you all again. It was lonely without you. Um, <laughs> sitting in a, a very sort of uh, weird Zoom virtual space all by myself, um, but that's okay. Uh, I hopefully that worked. I apologize if it if it didn't. Um, I my uh, a bad habit of teaching is that I tend to just lecture a lot um, and then not provide enough opportunity for for discussion and, and people to express themselves. Um, so if y'all don't mind, if, if maybe just a representative or someone from each group would, would mind sharing what y'all talked about, I'd love to be, uh, to be filled in. Nathaniel, just for the record, it worked up to a point, but somebody in our group was not able to unmute themselves. So that person, so, um, just so you know, it, it oh, okay. worked, but we need more practice with it. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for letting me know. Well, I'll go first from, from our group. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Emily, you were getting ready to talk, weren't you? I, I saw your mute go off. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to leave Nathaniel hanging there. So, um, actually, I'm not going to put Susie on the spot. So, Susie, you're welcome to say this for yourself if you want to. But I just thought she had an especially poignant uh, comment where she talked about the verse in Matthew where Jesus says, I'm going to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chick and kind of the feminine um, uh, mother God aspect of that. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the thought that came to me when she was saying that, which is an especially significant verse to many of us is, you know, why would Jesus, you know, compare his activities as the revealed, you know, son of God to just deterministic machines that mm. just, existed with no no thought and no inclination or anything else because to me the reverse would be well i guess jesus you gathering your disciples together as the mother hen gathers chips is is just instinct as well right so yeah I mean, okay yeah why would he compare something that is just instinct supposedly according to descartes with something that's not you know so to me yeah. it brings it brings the level of of his analogy up above Descartes' um, explanation of it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I know that this is the weirdest response to that possible, but it uh, <laughs> it reminds me of what um, the ancient church fathers said in their conversation about celibacy, um, uh, because uh, I, I know this is weird, but it, it was a lot of uh, conversations on, back because you know, like Catholic priests required to be celibate and so forth. Uh, or, or nuns or, and, and, and monks are called to that lifestyle as well. Um, and they said that, and, and so, so like Augustine had this extremely negative view about human sexuality and that it was something evil. And so celibacy was just kind of like refraining from something that was bad. Uh, and they had like, and an, an, an later on, they made significant objections to that saying that no, celibacy is like this call to a, um, you know, like a holy life. And if, if human sexuality is just like inherently evil, then celibacy like really isn't that great of a thing. Um, and, and it's, and so it, I know that's a weird, very weird, you know, thought pattern, but it's, it reminds me of that because it's like, okay, if, if human or, you know, if these non-human animals are just thoroughly machines and kind of mechanistic and, and, and everything, then like the analogy doesn't 
really, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really, it's not really that great. Um, and kind of like what you're talking about of like, yeah, there's this kind of depth of, of love that we can um, appreciate that is um, more than just machines or more, more, uh, hopefully that makes sense. But yeah, that, that's a really interesting thought. Um, what, what were some other groups? Um, Nell and our group, uh, Gregory and Nell and I were in a group. And Nell spoke to the, to the idea that one of the central messages of the Bible is, certainly of the New Testament, is idea of loving God's creation. And how do we reconcile this uh, mandate to love the creation by treating parts of it as if they were disposable uh, mechanisms. Mm. And um, my, my contribution to that discussion, um, I think would be, I'd be interested to know when that, uh, how contemporaries of Descartes reconcile their Catholicism um, or Protestantism as time developed, um, how they reconcile that uh, mandate with this new idea of a mechanistic clock-like universe. Yeah, uh, thank you. Those are um, great <clears throat> insights. Yes, I, if uh, one might be able to give a very broad uh summary of the Christian life, which is that the, the goal is to love God, love neighbor, and love all creation. Um, you know, scripture talks about all those things. And, and so if you come across like a teaching or a practice or something like that, that contradicts one of those things, um, then it's probably failing in some sense. And so I, I like what you're pointing out there, that if you have this philosophy like Descartes, that is, uh, leads to these consequences of really not valuing um, certain parts of, of creation, then it, uh, you, one needs to reconsider. <laughs> Somebody in our group talked about um, how God, you know, in Genesis talks about how God created all the creatures and everything else and then humans and set those people up as the pinnacle of creation which really there's a, a mistranslation of the word dominion here, which I'm not gonna go into, but it's a, another subject, but it's true. Uh, the word dominion has been mistranslated for a long time, but um, um, I was gonna say, we have to give people in Descartes time a little slack because they don't know what we know today. And um, I, think, I think that the crux of all of this is that we need to see animals as neighbor. To align this with Christianity, we have to understand and be able to view animals, as we have not done in the past, as truly our neighbors, because we now know that they are in terms of their feelings, their rationality, their, um, their sentience, and, um, and their DNA. You know, they... There's no doubt that they are our neighbors. And I think to align all this with Christianity, that's one of the things we have to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Fantastic. Thank you.
That was a really good point, Rondi. But uh, I also wanted to say Emily had brought up uh, a scripture that she really likes about the death. Oh, I just made a comment that the Bible says that uh, that God knows when a sparrow falls. And if, if, a, if God's aware of that, then it must matter. Yeah. It's not just an inanimate. It's object. not it's not like, you know, a um, yeah, an apple fell out of a tree. And then, then I then I asked her quietly if she was ready to stop eating meat yet. <laughs> we'll save that for discussion later. <laughs> we can talk about that another time, sure. But yeah, but it, it is, uh, you know, God's aware of every broken refrigerator. It doesn't exactly have the same ring to it. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, I, I think that uh, and it, that relates back to the... Um, Thing that was mentioned at the very beginning with the the mother hen and you know i'll gather you together yeah uh, that's great uh, those are wonderful points thank you one of the scriptures that's related that has always bothered me is when is the one that says um um god um, cares about the sparrow so therefore doesn't he care so much more about me or about us i i don't know chapter and verse on this but you know right, what right. i'm talking about yeah, that's always bothered me. If he cares about the sparrow, then he must care way more about humans, you know. Right, yeah, that has certainly been used to to sometimes justify like humans being way more important, certainly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I do think that, um, that, yeah, though, like if, if sparrows are not valuable at all, then the analogy just breaks down completely. Um, but yeah, that's a great question and, and uh, yeah, we can continue to think about that. But even if uh, I, I've mentioned this in the first week, that even if one were to want to take that verse as somehow justifying that humans are more, you know, much more valuable than the non-human animals, that still would not justify like anthropocentrism. It wouldn't justify the mistreatment of animals. Um, and if you want to check out a, a work that holds that position that humans are much more valuable than animals, but also rejects the idea that um, one should be mistreating animals and so forth. It's uh, a book, Pollution and the Death of Man by Francis Schaeffer. Um, I don't completely endorse everything that he says, and I'm not saying that his views are my own, but that is still another, uh, like if you have some, if, you, if you're ever talking to somebody that's very much committed to that view of, of humans being more valuable, um, then this book is definitely one to check out because he, he does a good job of still maintaining that um, that doesn't at all imply that we should be mistreating creation. And he does an excellent job of, um, it, it's just a great book in general to, to check out. I'll be sure to, uh, I'm putting that in the chat right now, Pollution and the uh, Death of Man by Francis. Schaefer. Um, okay, well, I'm going to uh, go ahead and, and follow up with some um, additional uh, material now about uh, about Descartes. Uh, I know we're still sticking with him, but um, it, it's y'all brought up some excellent responses from kind of a Christian perspective and, and citing scripture verses and so forth. Um, so I, I do want to tease that out a little bit more. Um, so Descartes' understanding of matter as one thing, and this is just a philosophical and kind of scientific objection, the understanding of matter that he had is that that kind of like deterministic clockwork universe, the mechanistic worldview, excuse me, uh, that view of, of matter is 
just kind of simply wrong. Um, the understanding of the world as analogous to like a giant clock contradicts our modern scientific theories. And I will attach in the uh, chat um, a link to an excellent article by uh, the philosopher Noam Chomsky. Um, and if you are you know, watching this video at a later time, the article is called Science, Mind, and the Limits of Understanding by Noam Chomsky. And uh, it's free to read online. I'm, I'm gonna attach a, a link to it here in the chat if you wanna check it out. Um, but this does a, a great job of summarizing the way that um, kind of the philosophy and, and the scientific understanding of matter had changed over time and also why um, kind of Descartes got it wrong. And um, though interestingly enough, uh, uh, De uh, Chomsky's engagement with Descartes is really interesting because he's kind of a sympathetic reader of Descartes because um, Chomsky, I don't know if you know him, he's uh, one of the greatest uh, philosophers of language and linguists of all time. So his engagement with, with Descartes on language is, is sympathetic, but he's also at the same time very critical. So that's um, a great article to check out. Um, but likewise, as scientists actually did more field research, studying animals and their natural habitats, it became more clear that this view of like a pure instinct and this view of animals as having just kind of like pure instinct and drive devoid of sociality. This is a hard word to say. Sociality or emotions simply isn't true. Animals are much more complex than machines. And most of us who have pets probably just already knew that, which is why you were probably listening to some of the stuff on Descartes just be like, mm, I don't know about that. Like, <laughs> uh, and so it, 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 we just kind of know by experience, experience and also subsequent scientific investigation, you know, through the work of like Jane Goodall. Um, and, you know, shout out the queen, um, she, uh, it, it, but also, um, you know, just people observing like dolphins and uh, even crows, things like that, it, it, brilliant animals and, and so forth. So we just have kind of uh, subsequently learned a lot more about animals and it just doesn't match up to, to what Descartes said. Uh, it, it, his form of extreme doubt about animal life, um, it just doesn't match up with our evidence. Or one would have to be very, very cynical and extremely skeptical in their approach. Uh, and I, I, I just don't think that's warranted. Um, it seems like you're at that point, you're just really begging for humans to be the only ones that have emotions, um, <laughs> which is just kind of silly. Um, and ultimately, you would be able to say the same thing about other humans. And many people pointed this out to Descartes, uh, like in his own time, it's this view called solipsism, which means I'm the only one who actually exists. Because um, you can look at other humans and be like, oh, sure, he's talking. Uh, and it looks like he's making his own decisions and expressing emotions. But really, he's just a robot. There's no inner subjectivity. It's all just programming. He's no different than a video game character. Uh, you know, we could easily say that it, it's just like, okay, th that's getting extremely skeptical and uh, probably not warranted. Uh, and it seems much more intellectually honest to conclude that 
you know, the, the emotions, the desires, um, the beliefs, the type of rationality and, and sentience that we see within animals are simply that emotions, desires, beliefs, rationality, and so forth. Likewise, in the Cartesian thinking of saying that animals don't really experience, uh, experience pain, that also kind of seems unfounded, especially if Descartes was wrong about animals being mindless robots. I've heard some debate in the sciences about the nature of animal pain, uh, but this type of like radical Cartesian view, it just doesn't really have much foundation, um, especially given all the other problems with his philosophy that we mentioned. Uh, and finally, from a Christian standpoint, even if animals, it, even if we granted all of this, and I, I think Descartes wrong, but even when we said he's right, it does not give us the right to do whatever we want to animals. Trees don't experience pain the way that humans do, um, but that doesn't give us a right to go around cutting down whatever trees we want and devastating forests. Instead, as uh, I believe Ken, you were mentioning earlier from your group, we are called to treat, uh, and, and Nell, um, we are called to treat creation properly uh, and to have a, a love and respect for God's creation because it belongs to God. Um, and likewise, it would be wrong for us to kind of devastate animal populations or do whatever we want to human animals to treat it like our property um, because they don't belong to us. They're not our property. You know, the, the, the creation is God's property and God's alone. Um, they belong to God and, you know, we still would need to treat them with, with a sense of respect. Uh, though just to be clear, I think Descartes was wrong. <laughs> In addition to belonging to God, I do think that non-human animals can experience real forms of suffering and pain, as well as experience emotions, beliefs, desires, um, sentience, and so forth. Um, and I would also add to this, I believe that animals are capable of experiencing God's love and presence. Um, I mentioned Jane Goodall earlier, and she has some really um, interesting research on uh, the spirituality of uh, chimpanzees, I believe, um, and the kind of uh, this rain dance that they do and uh, this response that they have to um, the beauties of nature. They'll come across a waterfall and like the hairs on the back of their neck will stand up and then they'll start like dancing it for in this kind of state of, of ecstasy or joy at the side of this um, waterfall. So um, yeah, animals do have this kind of like interesting spirituality as well. Uh, and, uh, but unfortunately, many Christians still kind of think like Descartes. Uh, it, this isn't exactly some sort of outdated uh, view of, of animals that nobody really thinks about anymore. And so this is just kind of a, you know, a history lesson. Um, but kind of like learning the way that ancients used to think that like emotions were housed in the stomach or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, it, many Christians still think like this. And it's very common to hear people claim that the difference between, say, like humans and animals is that animals don't have souls. That's a very Cartesian view. Uh, we then often reinterpret doctrines of the image of God or uh, Rondi, as you were saying earlier, doctrines about like dominion um, over animals, we reinterpret those things 
or misinterpret them as saying that the image of God means that like humans are the only ones who have souls or that uh, being in the image of God means that humans are creatures of value and non-human creatures are not of value. But again, these are deeply anthropocentric views of the world and they don't fit the biblical data that we talked about um, like in our first week where we went over a lot of the biblical material and there's even more that we didn't have time to talk about. Uh, so uh, to, to give a quick break, are there any questions or comments or things that need clarification? We have about um, eight minutes left in, in our class and I do have one other you know, section that, I, that I'd like to talk about that's significant, but I want to make sure that I'm not going too fast because I know, you know, y'all know me, I like to just lecture, lecture, lecture and not give any opportunity for comments or, or questions. Um, another bad guy in terms of the, um, the anthropocentrism that has infiltrated and has been part of Christian theology for a long, long, long time is Aquinas who you probably know, who said in the Summa Theologica that um, word for word, he said that um, we don't owe animals any responsibilities because they have no souls. Hmm. And so that soullessness infiltrated Christianity too. The idea of animals as not having souls of any kind or any. Yeah, which is weird. Um, yeah, I'll have to, I actually have not read that section before from Aquinas, um, but that's weird to me that, he would make a conclusion like that because he was an Aristotelian. Um, and in Aristotle's view, animals do have souls. It's interesting, but that is exactly what the man said. Yeah, in that's his crazy. And, you know, it, it, it says, you know, we owe animals no responsibility because they have no souls. Yeah, that's, uh, and like I mentioned- I'll give you, I'll give you the, um, the, the numbers, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. Yes. I'm just saying like, no, it, no. that's a, yes. a strange moment. of I know. It is. It someone is. who's so, who's so brilliant. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that'd be like saying we have no responsibility to the environment or to, you know, the forest or to trees or something like that. Cause they don't have souls um, or, you know, that that's uh, I, I don't see how that follows, but yeah, still, still strange, but thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So this problem does go, back farther than Descartes, for sure. Um, but he was kind of the one who definitely accelerated this. Uh, yes, Greg. Yeah, I think it's interesting maybe to contrast this with uh, so many peoples of the world that don't hold this view. Mm -hmm. uh, any study of uh, Native American mm. uh, beliefs will tell you that when they hunt, they, they really respect the soul of that deer that they're hunting. And it's, it's, a, it's a cooperative type of thing. Uh, I just wonder if it's a, a monotheistic type of uh, thing, not to go into total animism, uh, but I don't know, you know, where, where, does, the, where does the truth lie sometimes? That's oh, yeah, I a great point. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Yes, this is much more of like a Western, uh, like European um, type of, of, of thinking, whereas like what you're saying, um, Native Americans uh, and and or even more like Eastern philosophy as well, uh, are gonna have diff completely different views. Um, it's just unfortunate that the European view of, of lacking animals is just um, unfortunate. And then like colonialism kind of like spread that to be like kind of the dominant system. Then that informed like a lot of 
academia and science and so forth. And um, uh, but thank you, yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. There, there's great material within like indigenous philosophy on uh, learning how to once again kind of respect animals and respect uh, the created world. Nathaniel, could I just interject something real quick? Go for it. This is in support of uh, Randy's comment. This came from Animal Theology by Lindsay, uh, page 13 at the bottom. He uh, writes, in summary, three elements distinguish Aquinas' view of the status of animal life. First, animals are irrational, possessing no mind or reason. Second, they exist to serve human ends by virtue of their nature and by divine providence. Third, they therefore have no moral status in themselves, save insofar as some human interest is involved, for example, as human property. So mm. I, I knew you. that. That right. was great. That was Thank great. You. Thank yeah. you for delineating those three really key things. That's a great summary. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, obviously, I think all of those points are wrong, but we, we can see how that becomes so influential. And I guess that, you know, uh, like Descartes himself was Catholic, if I, if I recall correctly. And so um, I, I, I'm sure some of that bore influence on him as well. Which, again, is just so weird of like, even in Sorry, it's just baffling my mind. Like even in like Aquinas' system, like uh, I I don't get why you know like the or the Arist Aristotelian system, like animals do have souls and and, and so forth. They, they just have a different kind of soul. So I I don't, I don't get why that would. Anyways, I'm, I'm my baffling isn't going to get my being baffled isn't going to get get, get us anywhere. Nathaniel was um, Descartes pre or post Reformation. I can't oh, remember. that's such a good question. Uh, yeah, was he? <laughs> um, I can't remember post. off the top of my head. Post. Post? Okay. Yeah, so somebody Google it. Yeah, somebody can Google it and fact check me. Um, Just a quick comment, though. Word for word, what uh, Ken, who Ken read that, could have been taken, we could have heard that at Stagville on Saturday as a justification for the enslavement of human beings, mm -hmm. almost word for word. Yes. Yeah, they said the same, sorry, uh, they said the same thing about like um, uh, indigenous people and, and Native Americans during um, like the colonization of, of America or like the, um, you know, like the, the Polish or whatever coming over and, and setting up their missions camps and then using indigenous people as, as slaves. Um, and, and they're always, you know, you have this argument like, oh, sure, they look like they're in pain or they look like they're human and, you know, talk like it and everything, but they're really not. Um, it, yeah, all sorts of ridiculous ideas. Is anything that served in interests of the of the ruling um, powerful people at the time? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that still continues kind of today because you have like these really big uh, you know, food industries, for example, that would uh, love for Descartes' philosophy to continue. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of invested interest in, in not just food, you know, clothing and, and all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, these mega industries. Uh, like I heard one time it was said, like the food industry 
the contemporary food industry in America is built around quick, cheap meat. Um, and uh, you don't get there without animal abuse. Um, uh, he, died quick, in, yeah, in, sorry. he died in 1650. 1650. Okay, thank you. Thank you for, for fact-checking us, mm -hmm. thank you. Uh, and real quick, I know that um, we're right up here on the time, but there's one other thing that I just wanted to get through real quick, if that's okay with you. If you want to leave, you are free to do so. Um, I'll only mark you down five points on your grade uh, at the class if you want to leave. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, real quick, I, I do wanna get through one other significant influence on anthropocentricism. Uh, because for quite some, and this would, sorry, this would be the, the debate on evolution. For quite some time in American culture, Christians have had an invested interest in being deliberately anthropocentric and following a uh, strangely Cartesian theology. The debate over uh, evolution versus creationism was a huge cultural battle within America. There's the famous Scopes monkey trial that took place in the 1920s, which was a very popular court case, um, you know, made all the news. And it was about whether Darwinian evolution, uh, I recall it, it was about um, whether or not it could be taught in public school. There's a teacher that taught it in his science class and he got in trouble for it and so forth. Um, but events like this put many Christians on defense and it led to feelings of embarrassment, fear, and insecurity. And it also led to feelings within many more conservative and especially fundamentalist Christians that uh, the liberal progressive modernists were out to get them, trying to persecute them. And on the flip side, many within the general public began seeing Christians as kind of anti-intellectual. Uh, they were science and fact deniers driven by a dogmatic commitment to blind faith in an ancient book uh, or a little literalist interpretation of an ancient book instead of being more open-minded people who can follow the evidence. And so that was some of the stereotypes that came out from this time. And so within Christian circles, uh, and this was exacerbated by uh, the fundamentalist modernist debate, which we don't have time to get into, but um, yeah, there's a huge debate even within Christianity at that time. And so within kind of like the fundamentalist circles, sometimes the test of faith was whether or not you took Genesis one through three, literally, there's some other things as well, but um, eventually not in the early days of fundamentalism, but eventually, you know, that starts to become something of a litmus test. And associated this with this was the need to emphasize that humans did not evolve from non-human animals, but were instead created by a special act of God. And so that came directly out of this type of evolution debate. And so thus they needed to make a harsh distinction between animals and humans. Um, and kind of to, to your point, they said, uh, earlier, Rondi, they are not our neighbors. Um, and there was like this kind of invested interest uh, to try to say that hum you know, humans and animals are not neighbors. They're completely different. Uh, and as many of you know, I'm from Texas and my hometown has uh, very deep roots in fundamentalism and, and evangelicalism. So 
uh, even to this day within, within that town, or at least a, a few years ago, I would hear pastors and teachers at local Bible colleges and stuff reinforce that idea of like, no, no, humans are a special creation and are, you know, did not evolve from animals. And so if one says within these types of Christian contexts, we need to be concerned about the ethical treatment of animals because they are creatures who can suffer like us or, you know, because they're our neighbors or because, you know, they're also creatures of God and so forth. People can interpret that as calling into question the special status of humans as being kind of like the crowned jewel of, of God's creation. Uh, and so anthropocentrism ends up being a deliberate ideological commitment in order to draw the line away from kind of the modernist society who was seen as abandoning faith in God and leaving behind scripture as the ultimate authority. And so uh, it, it ended up being the case where kind of, um, uh, you know, trying to, to say that like humans are the only ones that matter is in a weird way, like trying to defend the authority of scripture uh, it, I'm not saying that's how everyone viewed it, but you kind of see where that starts to become like a weird sort of uh, unconscious logic or, or ideology. Um, and, I, and I do think that it's an, it's an ideology. Some philosophers have pointed out that uh, ideologies you, like deliberately work with con that type of like contradiction. Um, uh, so maybe here at Duke, there's... Uh, uh, you, you know, and in the wider Durham area, maybe there's less of a fundamentalist influence on theology because, you know, you have the divinity school here and the Durham area has, uh, at least from my perspective, a, a stronger mainline and Catholic influence. Uh, but this type of thinking is still very prominent throughout America. Uh, so I think it's important for us to be aware of some of its origins. I know I gave just a very general summary, but um, still be aware of some of its origins and of those concerns, um, but also take it seriously. So we can help people see that uh, we are not trying to destroy their faith by affirming the value of animals. We're not trying to say that scripture is not authoritative, or we're not trying to say that, um, you know, forget about the Bible and, and humans aren't special and humans weren't, you, you know, uh, not trying to deny the existence of God or anything like that, um, but rather that we are actually trying to reclaim important teachings within scripture and within the Christian tradition that go uh, way back before Darwin and the fundamentalist modernist debates. Um, so I, I did just want to include that as well, because I do think that that's a very influential um, uh, type of ideology or philosophy that upholds the anthropocentric philosophy. So uh, that's it. Um, that's all. That's it. <laughs> Thank you for, uh, for being here. You're welcome to include, you know, your questions or comments, but um, sorry for running five minutes over. I have a, a quick question that everybody yes. should know about. What's our, what's, what's our last session, Nathaniel? Um, it will be, so uh, next week we have um, week four, uh, which um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I have the notes prepared for it, and I can't remember what we're talking about. But we are going to talk about something on, on week four, and then we're going to have a, a 
a week five after that. So we have, so I think, two more sessions. So that will be the 25th. Um, I'm just looking at my calendar, and if I've got this correct, the week after that will be the 1st of November. And in the chapel, there will be the All Saints Requiem at the same hour that your class is. Oh, okay. Is there a way that we can adjust our meeting time? Right. Or a meeting day, maybe? Yes, uh, we will. I, I'll, that's a great, thank you for making me aware of that. I will um, talk to Carol about it and um, either we, we can um, just skip a week to have a week off or um, I'll see if maybe like, eh, we'll just cap it at four weeks and not have, we'll see, but I, I will figure that out and um, we will let y'all know. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was that last point that you made was really important and I'm glad you took the time to talk about it. <clears throat> Thank you so much.